oh, it sounds kind of trite, but like water is life. Even in, in every civil engineering department, somewhere there's a little posters advertising the Peace Corps, showing someone building a well in some remote area, and it always seemed appealing to me that by having skills that can help provide clean water for people, it's a way to get involved in helping to provide a real essential service to people. Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. And today I'm speaking with Professor Ed Maurer. Every year around this time in California, we hear news about a new fire ripping through some area of the state, and it just really brings into light how delicate our climate is and how much it's changing. Professor Maurer has spent his career studying water resources. In fact, in the late 1980s, he did a project forecasting sea level rise in the San Francisco Bay and estimated that it would cost $1 billion to protect the city from future damages due to rising sea levels, and that was over 30 years ago. In this conversation, we discuss his childhood love of bicycles and how that lives on to this day. In fact, he had multiple bikes in his office when I interviewed him. We talk about how to think about climate change in a positive way, how to think about it without losing hope. Um, We talk about the California drought, another cheery and lighthearted topic. My biggest takeaway from this interview was on the importance of protecting and appreciating the climate and water that we so often take for granted, because as he puts it, water is life. Enjoy this short edited interview, and I hope you have a great week. So I'm excited to be here today with Professor Ed Maurer. And I would love to start out by asking, what did you do for fun as a kid? And does that at all connect to what you're doing now? I guess so, yeah. Well, as a kid, I um, I liked to bicycle. That's probably the first thing that comes to mind. And I even liked to work on bikes when I was young. Um, and I still like to do both those things a lot. Did they connect to my work very much? Probably not. But I keep looking for ways that they can. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm from Davis, which has the bicycling hall of fame. So I've always had lots of neighbors who enjoy working on uh, bikes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, how did you get interested in uh, like climate change or oceans or geology or any of any of these things that you're working with today? Uh, I came into it much more through uh, civil engineering and water in particular. Uh, so as a male student in high school who did relatively well in science and math in the 1970s. Um, I was funneled into an engineering career. Uh, I didn't know what engineers did. Uh, Neither of my parents had a college degree, so I was kind of, I went to college supposedly to become an engineer, but didn't know where it was going. 
left college, went back to went to community colleges for a while, uh, went back to college again full time, and came across in particular one faculty member who did water quality research. Uh, brought me in on some of that stuff, and that was just fun. That really opened my eyes to a lot of aspects of how you model water, uh, water quality in particular modeling stream flow, studying the dynamics of what happens with sediments and streams. Uh, that sort of thing really grabbed me. Uh, so I became very interested in pursuing it further after working for a few years to kind of make some dents in my student loans and that kind of thing. I ended up going back to grad school studying uh, water resources specifically uh, in California. As an internship during that period, I worked with uh, group called the Pacific Institute in Oakland, who um, had a project, now this was 1989, uh, looking at uh, climate change impacts on water, specifically sea level rise in San Francisco Bay. Uh, so that was pretty early in the game. There wasn't a lot of that sort of research happening. I didn't know anything about it, uh, but I learned as I went. And so that was kind of my first connection of water and climate. Uh, mm. So it, it goes back a few decades. Mm -hmm. What do you think it was about water that drew you in that really interested you? Uh, oh, it sounds kind of trite, but like water is life. You know, even in, in every civil engineering department somewhere, there's a little, or at least there used to be little posters advertising the Peace Corps, showing someone building a well in some remote area. And it always seemed appealing to me that by having skills that can help provide clean water for people, it's a way to get involved in helping to provide a real essential service to people. Mm -hmm. So that was... Mm -hmm. And then what was your, your work? You mentioned the San Francisco Bay. So what were you kind of studying? Uh, it was actually a fairly, you know, I, I want to say rudimentary approach. It's, it's what's now called kind of the bathtub approach to sea level rise, just saying... If the static mean sea level went up uh, one meter or something like that, I think we were looking at about one meter, so about three feet up, uh, what would be submerged? Uh, so looking at things like railroads, railroad tracks that are close to the water, freeways that are close to the water, uh, buildings that are close to the water, and either how much it would cost to raise them by three feet or how much it would cost to build a levee around it. Um, and so it was just a long exercise in tracing paper maps around the bay uh, to see where where vulnerable areas were and how much infrastructure would have to be built and tabulating it. Uh, and so it was all done on, on paper. Yeah, very, very time consuming. It took about eight months to do the whole project. I mean, the, the number we came up with was big. It was a, a billion dollars to protect San Francisco Bay, and that's you know, almost 30 years ago at this point. And then I read that you also volunteered for about four years in Peru, right, uh, during the 1990s. So what, what got you uh, interested in that? What, why'd you move there and do that? After about four years working on different reservations around the western U.S., uh, during that period, I had gotten married. My wife had graduated with a graduate degree in theology. So she was at kind of a break point in her career. And I felt like I could probably step away as well from what I was doing. It seemed to fit pretty nicely 
as a time to do something really different. Both my wife and I had been very, always been interested in doing international volunteer service. Uh, we contacted Mary Knoll lay missioners and uh, went through the long application process for that. And uh, yeah, then left everything behind and went and uh, lived in up by Lake Titicaca in Peru mm. for from 1994 to 1998. Hmm. And what were you doing while you were there? I was doing uh, small water projects mostly. Well, I guess probably half my time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so a lot of time spent traveling out to these remote communities, helping them look at what water resources they had and help to come up with solutions that might help them get a more secure supply out of it. So a lot of times they'd have an open spring or uh, really almost like a mud puddle, like a spring emerging from a hillside. Uh, and look at ways to enclose it, to make it clean, to keep animals from walking through it, uh, or in addition, maybe piping it down to closer to where the houses were, or the health clinics. It also helped with uh, a small program of uh, digging wells, because uh, hand-dug wells still are a, just a very reliable way of getting water. Hmm. I would help raise the money to provide the materials, and the community would basically provide all the labor and get some wells mm -hmm. constructed as well. Yep, a lot of that sort of thing. I also ended up teaching at the National University of the Altiplano, which was kind of interesting as well. It was a an introduction to teaching in an international venue that I had never imagined, but I was kind of had a lull in some of my water development work, and I walked down to the campus and just asked them if there was anything they needed, mm. and they put me in the classroom. One of the one of the bigger questions I have is around climate change, and it seems like it's such a huge problem, and it can almost be like paralyzing for people. You know, thinking about like what can I do, and sometimes we hear we hear things like, "Oh, try to ride your bike instead of drive, or try to take shorter showers, or eat less meat." But it seems like such a big problem that I'm kind of wondering, like, is there anything? individual people can do and how should like how should we think about the problem so we don't lose hope i guess <laughs> not losing hope is key for the climate change stuff everything you mentioned is good those are all good things to do eat less meat find better ways to get around other than dragging around a couple thousand pounds of steel everywhere you go <laughs> and there are a lot of options there everything from light bulbs to the type of water heaters we do if you have a house where you can put solar panels on the roof, that's always good. So a lot of individual actions can be very beneficial, but you're right that that's not enough to solve the problem. There have to be institutional changes made. So that means writing to Congress people, calling them, uh, showing up when they have town halls and saying, what are you doing to combat this? And there are a lot of things they can do from kind of evening the scales uh, as far as funding goes. Uh, the fossil fuel industry is heavily, heavily subsidized. If we paid the true cost of, of burning gasoline in our vehicles or burning oil for electricity, we'd be paying far more, double or more than we are. And so if we want to really put renewables like solar and wind power on an even playing field uh, with fossil fuels, we need to include that in a smart very simple way to do it is something like a carbon tax. Mm -hmm. There are measures out there that have been proposed and 
pushing for not just in the United States. That's that's where I happen to live, so that's a good place to try to exert that influence. Try to get my Congress people to support a carbon tax, and then try to project that globally as well. And I think a lot of the globe is there are several steps ahead of us in the United States, and we need to, if we want to assume a role of leadership, we're going to have to do things a little bit, a little bit differently than we have been, especially for the last year when we've been running backwards, running away from a problem rather than confronting it. Hmm. Um, so I think those sorts of things are important. I think in addition, we need to take measures to adapt to climate change. Hmm. It's absolutely true that we've already set in motion a certain amount of warming, even if we were to stop emitting excess carbon dioxide to the atmosphere today, uh, the climate's going to continue to warm just because it's not an equilibrium yet. So there's a certain inertia to the system that's going to keep warming happening for a couple more decades. And so impacts are going to keep getting worse. We need to especially look at the most vulnerable populations. Uh, people with fewer resources are always going to be at uh, greater risk of impacts, and that's absolutely the case with climate impacts as well. So subsistence farming uh, communities, poor communities in urban areas. When you look at things like heat waves, they're the ones that get hit worse. Bad air pollution episodes, uh, they're the ones that get hit. In the Arctic, there are some uh, Native American tribes that have actually already had to uh, relocate, some indigenous. But coastal erosion because of sea level rise is accelerating and they've been hit hardest. We should focus on a, a certain amount of our effort on that as well, mm. adapting to changes. Mm. What do you view your role as, as a professor, in terms of the larger climate change problem? As a professor, I think my role is to follow the data and let that be a guide to policies I might promote or ways that in engineering, our analysis used to be done differently, and maybe it needs to change to reflect to reflect a change in environment. And there's a paper that I recently published with a student and another colleague here uh, that we looked at different design floods. Now, in hydrology, one of the things you do is you look at a flood that has a certain risk level associated with it. So maybe uh, a flood you expect with a one percent chance in any year, and we looked down the road 50 years or 100 years or so and tried to predict how often we expect to see those floods. And of course, because a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture, rainfall tends to get more intense. What you end up with is these intense events happening more frequently. Uh, so we tried to take one look at how if you want to have protection against the fl a flood you would expect with a 1% chance in a year, you might have to design for something 50% bigger than that if you want that level of protection to still exist in 75 years. Hmm. Uh, so there are those sorts of analyses that, um, that I can do as, as a teacher, as a researcher. And there's a lot more I need to do as well um, to engage politically in things that make sense. Sort of what I was saying about a, a carbon tax. Uh, if it looks like that's a way to have the way we treat our energy sources uh, reflect our understanding of 
the true costs of those energy sources of using them, mm -hmm. then it's absolutely something I should be pursuing vigorously. So. Mm -hmm. What would you tell a student who's maybe really passionate about uh, climate change but doesn't really know where to start? Like, would you recommend like political that that route as a, like a way to make change, or are are there other are there other disciplines that are needed, or how can what like what could a student do? to help this problem if it was something they were really passionate about? I'd say get involved. There are, there are so many, like, there are many avenues to getting involved. A smart way to begin the process is understanding the science. You don't have to dive into the, the really intense articles right away, but start by opening up the National Climate Assessment. And, uh, it's got a summary at the front that's a nice overview of all the science. And in that way, you kind of have that in your back pocket. If people ask you questions about what do we expect to happen with temperatures, you, you can respond in a way that, that reflects the true state of the science uh, that's behind it. But then I'd say follow sort of, no one can do everything. So if you're passionate about cycling, look at that as an alternative transportation mode. And there are organizations locally working on that, combining different issues, looking at how we can design our cities differently, modify them so that they're, it's easier to get around without individual vehicles. Uh, is there a way to promote bicycling in a way that resolves some of, some of the problems other people see with it? Can electric bikes work? What would it take? Uh, what would be required for regulations for those to change or for road striping or basic infrastructure or community organizing around that. There are different ways to take whatever gifts a person has and bring them to the table and, hmm. and solve different aspects of the problem. No, no one can do it on their own. They shouldn't. Mm -hmm. More specifically on the topic of water, I know living in California my whole life that the drought is always kind of a topic of discussion and I've always kind of wondered like at some point is it just that we have a drier climate than before is does does the drought end at some point and just a new normal begin or is this really just a, a drought with a period I've always I've always kind of wondered that drought's a hard one uh, because there are different definitions of drought to begin with one is just a shortage of rain one is just, one is a shortage of water uh, and there is some a shortage of soil moisture in agricultural areas. So you can have one type of drought exist, but not another type of So a shortage of rain, but if there's enough water in the reservoirs, maybe we can satisfy agricultural demands to a certain degree. In California in particular, uh, we have probably six months of drought every year. So we're kind of, it's built right into our climate uh, that we have these long periods with no rain. We're really reliant on a handful of storms every year, six storms, eight storms a year that come through. If we get five, we have a drought. If we get nine, we have flooding. We're very sensitive to small changes in the paths that these storms take, uh, the amount of moisture they carry when they do hit land, the temperature of the air that's carrying them as it uh, will tend to drop its rain in different places or drop it as rain instead of snow, uh, which is something that's been happening more as well. We also have expanding agriculture, 
and expanding population, all of which increases demands. So there's a lot that could be done by just looking at what we're using water for and reducing that. In that sense, sort of look at these really intense droughts like we experienced a couple of years ago as something that is just part of our life. Some of the things that were put in place then, uh, like, well, it's maybe having irrigated suburban lawns doesn't make a lot of sense. Some of them were taken out and some of them were being put back in now that it started raining again, knowing full well that within five years, it's very likely we'll end up with another drought and they'll have to be taken out again. So there are certain things like that that we just need to change. We can live with half the water we do in urban areas without dramatically changing our life. Uh, so that that's one thing. And there, there are a lot of things happening on that front. There are you know, programs put in place to convert irrigated lawns to things that don't require irrigation. Uh, there's the reclaimed water system being starting to deliver water to more and more areas. So some public parks, the Santa Clara campus uh, relies on this reclaimed water. It, it's kind of a drought-proof supply because it's really a function of the wastewater, which uh, we expect will be a continuing stream of, of water. Uh, as far as agriculture goes, uh, that's more complicated. We've had maybe some expansions of agriculture that uh, were not the wisest investment, I'd say. Um, having junior water rights, meaning in times of shortage, are the first ones to lose their water. People exploiting those to put in orchards, which require long-term deliveries of water. You can't have one dry year and let it go fallow. You lose your entire investment. Uh, so planting orchards with junior water rights might not be the wisest thing to do. And I, I know there's been some of that happening in California. So I don't know what regulations might be in place to, to prevent that, but certainly there are ways to look at how we, how we use our water where we could do it in a way that makes us less vulnerable to drought. And then my last kind of bigger question is around a new project that you're working on in Nicaragua. Um, so I'm kind of curious, what is what is that? What are what are the goals, and what type of kind of research project is it? What impact do you hope it'll have? Well, it's actually it's um, been going on for me almost three years, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the principal investigator Chris Bacon uh, in environmental sciences and studies is. Uh, He's been involved in Nicaragua for decades. Uh, he lived there for a number of years. Uh, he's got family there. He's already built a network of connections into communities down there. This project I've become involved in is one small piece, looking at food and water security in general in northern Nicaragua, in a, where it's uh, kind of coffee growing, but also kind of subsistence level beans. And the goal that I have is to look at things like how rainfall patterns have changed in that area. I looked at what, how that might change in the future. So in particular, how their rainfall patterns might change and what that might mean as far as their planting and harvesting cycle goes uh, and whether that might have implications for food security. And we're already planning future steps for integrating more closely with what the farmers perceive as their greatest risk, mm -hmm. rather than looking at it from more of a meteorological standpoint, which is what I've done so far. So you're, so you're hoping that it has more of a practical impact for the farmers? Yeah, I'd say so. And to do that, it needs to 
it needs to connect more tightly with what the farmers themselves see as important. Mm. Uh, that's a, something that, as an engineer, I don't usually get involved in. So this is stretching me in new directions. Mm. Uh, fortunately, other people on the team are very adept at this, and so it's uh, I can learn from learn from them. Awesome. Well, I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, then what would you want to say? Especially these days, I think because our political and conversational climate is so tense and contaminated in so many ways, I'd say maybe think the best of your neighbor before you open your mouth. <laughs> and finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? It would include a couple-hour bike ride and a trip to the farmer's market. Awesome. Well, thanks so much <laughs> for taking the time to do this podcast. Sure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you could do me a little favor, if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, head over to there and leave a review. That would be super awesome and might help the show reach a couple more people. Stay upbeat, ask some questions, and have an excellent day.